The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. For the ones who get it done, the most important part is the one you need now. And the best partner is the one who can deliver. That's why millions of maintenance and repair pros trust Granger. Because we have professional-grade supplies for every industry, even hard-to-find products. And we have same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders. But most importantly, we have an unwavering commitment to help keep you up and running. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hi, this is Cliff Berg, and you're listening to the Agile Uprising podcast. Greetings, and welcome to another edition of the Agile Uprising podcast. I'm your host, Jay Hersko. For this week's episode, we're going to be talking about the book slash movement uh, slash bigger than book and movement, Agile 2. And with me, I have one of the authors of the book, Mr. Cliff Berg. Cliff, thank you for joining. It's my pleasure, Jay. Thank you. So, Cliff, uh, let's start out with the, the typical, for people who may not have heard of you or don't know anything about you, if you had to give an elevator pitch about who you are and what you do, how would you sum it up? Oh, goodness. Well, if you ask my wife and my stepson, they'll give you two totally different answers. <laughs> but uh, for the benefit of your audience, uh, my name is Cliff Berg. Uh, my career is now uh, in its 40th year, more or less. I started out as a nuclear and then electrical engineer. I got into software, founded a company in 1995 that grew to 200 people. I was CTO. We embraced extreme programming around 2000, so I have a lot of experience with that, and that's how I got involved with the Agile movement. I wrote a book called High Assurance Design, which is about applying Agile thinking and Agile ideas to building high assurance, secure, and reliable systems. I've been a consultant that helped with more than 10 Agile and DevOps transformations. Today, I do a lot of DevOps consulting uh, and I also teach uh, DevOps courses through Riley and also my own really intense in-depth course that takes a year to get through. And I also recently uh, launched the Agile 2 movement, which uh, really the credit goes to the 15 people involved in that. It was a global team. We did it during the pandemic. And uh, recently, uh, some of us have also launched Agile 2 Academy, which provides Agile 2 related uh, education, uh, but it's not a certification mill. It's real stuff, uh, right. real skills. It's really incredible stuff. Okay, anyway, that that's my summary. That's you. So um, when I mentioned when I mentioned I was recording this episode with a coworker, and I said, you know, it's it's Agile two, and I waved my copy of the book around. His his remark was, "We needed a new Agile." So how would you? I, I mean, after reading the book, I get where you're going, Cliff. But in your own words, how would you answer that question if if you were sitting at like a bar? And two Agile is sitting there and they say, Cliff, sure. we need a new Agile. How would you answer that? Yeah. Well, it depends who you ask whether they think we need a new one. Because uh, recently I listened to an interview of Jeff Patton, who invented, I believe, the uh, story mapping paradigm. He wrote a book about it. 
And he made a comment toward the end of the interview that uh, Agile has changed a lot in the last 20 years. It's not what it was 20 years ago to most people. Although some people are stuck in the year 2001, if you will. <clears throat> uh, but most people who really make this stuff work at scale have moved on a lot. And the books that have come out in the last 10 years, if you look at them, and not just agile books, but books related to leadership and collaboration and uh, uh, cognitive, cognitive science and uh, product design. And if you look at all those things, uh, things have come a long way. Thinking's very different. And people who do agile well, who actually get results at scale, uh, tend to have a set of viewpoints about it that diverge very substantially from what I would describe as common agile thinking uh, during the early 2000s. And I know what the common agile thinking was because I was very deeply involved with that community. As I explained, my own company had adopted extreme programming. <clears throat> so, uh, and, you know, and I ended up writing a book related uh, to agile methods uh, for high assurance systems. So uh, it has changed a lot. If you ask people who really have success with this stuff, uh, so Agile 2 is an attempt to collect those things into a holistic, cohesive whole and also add some things that kind of haven't been discussed enough, like data is one of them. Uh, data has many different aspects to it. Uh, within the Agile 2 uh, principles, we've identified three different aspects related to data and attempted to cover those. So and I, there have been agile articles about Agile and data, but we felt it, it really is kind of a stepchild. It really isn't integrated the way it needs to be. So Agile 2 brings all these things together. Uh, and, and the reason we put a name on it, Agile 2, is so it's clear we're talking about Agile. We're not talking mm -hmm. about something else. Well, that answers my next question. So, I mean, and, I, and I'm going to be completely honest, Cliff, you sent me a copy of the book um, because, and I thank you and your publicist for that because I can't do e-readers. I need to, I need to have a tactile. And I sat down and I was kind of, I didn't know what to expect. I was open-minded, but I'm like, oh, is this going to be somebody peddling another thing? And then you can see by my notes and my flags, right? This is all the notes I took. So I was, I blasted through this thing in a weekend um, because I do think there's, there's a lot of really great distillations, like you said, of, you're getting away from the shirts and certs movement and getting more towards the, Hey, this is how you make this, this shit work. Right. Yeah. Um, one of the things I want to ask you is you start out with the philosophical argument of why you needed to introduce this because agile was at an interesting inflection point. And my question to you is do a lot of the problems that we see in the agile industrial complex, does it really just boil down to a case of extremes? You have the zealots who have overrun the asylum and are running around waving the, the manifesto and the scrum guide, and they're not they're, they're forsaking the forest for the trees. Is that really what it comes down to? That's kind of the rub that I get, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts. I think that's a huge part of it. it it's, you know, I don't know if it's 80% of it or 30% or, or what, it is, but it's, that's a huge part of it. Um, my editor at Pearson uh, you know, I published some books through um, through Prentice Hall and uh, Addison Wesley, and I have an ed one editor at Pearson for that. And about 10 years ago, he, in his words, and this is a senior editor, and he goes to lots of conferences, and he described the Agile community as insular. 
That was his, his way of describing it. And that was like how he summed it up. It's an insular community. Now things have changed a lot. It's not that insular anymore. I've noticed there's a lot of rich thinking in the agile community, but um, you know, it, it took a while. And, and so, you know, agile too tries to, tries to embrace that rich thinking. I, I think whenever you have some kind of movement, you know, like the agile movement, you end up with, with people who kind of identify with it personally, instead of viewing it apart from themselves. You know, they mm. see it as, you know, one, one way to look at a, an idea set is it's just a set of ideas. And let me consider those ideas and integrate them with my other ideas. But then some people have a tendency to actually embrace those ideas and put them on a pedestal and identify personally, like I'm a scrum person or I'm an agile person or I'm this or I'm that. And when, when you do that, I think that's really perilous because it then becomes rigid and dogmatic. You then become fearful of any change to the ideas because then the change yep. threatens your own personal identity. Um, and so, you know, I, I think we really need to resist that kind of, you know, uh, paleolithic, you know. Lizard uh, brain uh, behavior, uh, yeah. Yeah, of like personally identifying, you know, the Agile Manifesto, you know, it's a clever document, you know, it's really the four values, the principles, you know, a few of them hammered out by email later, but really all they did is came up with those four values and they're good, they're good values, but it's not, it's not biblical text. It, you know, there are problems with it. There are, mm -hmm. even though it's good, you know, almost all documents that have good stuff have issues. You know, it, it's not perfect. Yeah, and nothing should, is. Nothing is. Yeah, yeah, nothing is. And we shouldn't treat it as, as something that is, is, uh, is perfect and immutable. And uh, yeah, people uh, want to hold it almost like the Bible. They want to hold it inviolate and not want to change it. Whereas, as I mean, look at, you know, human development, evolution, all things, all ideas change and grow over time and not necessarily for a bad reason. And to, 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 to your point, to the, the dogmatists, I love the term you use in here, scrum dementalists, right? Like the people who are so to your point, they, they project themselves onto that idea. I mean, it's almost, it's almost comparative to the, how we create as humans, we create cult of personalities around certain people or certain things. And then we put them up on a pedestal. And I mean, would Steve Jobs have been a little bit different if people had called him out on his shit when he was alive? You know, like his parking in the handicap spot every day outside the office or the way he treated his first, like maybe, who knows? I don't know, maybe he's too strong of a personality, but who knows? Um, one of the things that I really picked out about the book, which I personally love, is the emphasis around technical practices and DevOps, right? So one of the things you bring up, which I never considered until I read it was, you know, the guys, and it was all guys that were in the room writing the manifesto, were all very, very competent software engineers, guys like Kent Beck, guys like Schwaber. So they know how to write code. And that was kind of a bias written in inadvertently in the manifesto that technical chops are just there. And you just have technical chops when the reality, you know, you, you said when we were chatting, you know, you've done something on the long lines of 10 plus transformations, right? Technical chops of that magnitude do not grow on trees and not everybody has them. So there needs to be some emphasis there. I mean, the, one of the, the, one of the, the, the statistics you pulled out in the book where I was completely floored, I took a picture and sent it to a bunch of agile coaches. Um, it was that report in 2011 where 52% of the respondents said they were using scrum but only 2% said they were using XP. I mean, this is, 
Scrum Kanban, all this stuff is based on good software delivery. And yet we're not worried about software delivery. Yeah. Yeah, it's a huge dysfunction. You know, the one thing I, I just want to clarify is that the term scrum demental, scrum dementalist, I didn't coin that term. That actually uh, came from the British Computer Society in a 10-year <laughs> year retrospective that they did uh, 10 years ago on the state of Agile. They described scrum, scrum dementalism as one of the major, major dysfunctions in the industry. Um, I, I agree, you know, I, I'm technical. And, you know, but I also recognize the, the absolute huge importance of the non-technical. Um, you know, it's, it all matters. And I watched with dismay at, you know, during the 2000s as the agile community gradually devalued and, and, and removed and, and filtered out all of the technical dimensions. Um, and, you know, you need the technical because it's powerful enablers. Uh, Ron Jeffries has, has said, you cannot do Agile without automated tests. Um, <clears throat> you know, it, to remove the technical, it'd be like, you know, look at, look at company. You know, today, most companies, big companies, unless you're talking about the corner, the corner restaurant, most companies operate on some kind of technology platform, whether it's a digital platform or something, you know, or, you know, I love the case of cases of Tesla and SpaceX because they build hardware. I, I myself have done consulting with hardware manufacturers of a number of kinds. I am a hardware engineer in my background. You know, so uh, agility can be applied really well to those things, even DevOps. Um, and you know, to, to think that you can divorce the technical aspects from this is really misguided. Um, th those technical aspects are the enablers. You know, we wouldn't have DevOps if it weren't for commodity virtualization that became available in the early 2000s. That's what made DevOps possible. And the need for internet scale uh, for Google and Amazon and Netflix and companies like that, they needed internet scale, hundreds of millions of users. And in order to achieve that, they had to scale in ways that had never been done before. <clears throat> and that was horizontal scaling. And for that, they really needed commodity virtualization to make it feasible, to make it manageable. Otherwise, it would have been a horrendous, horrendous management thing to, ma to manage. Um, so, you know, the, the technology dimension is absolutely crucial. And one of the principles, actually a few of the principles in Agile too, is that, you know, you know people who focus on the product and, and the value proposition for the customer need to understand how the product is built also. They do, because today that's strategic. How it's built is strategic. And just like people who build the product need to understand the product's value proposition and, and the basic business model, they, everybody needs to understand the entire value stream to some level. And you gave me the perfect segue because that's where I wanted to go into. Um, you use Elon Musk a lot as an example. And the example you use about Elon Musk is specifically where he where he's recognized or acknowledged as the how to him the how is just as important as the what when it comes to SpaceX. And he admits that he's not a a rocket engineer. He does not understand jet propulsion, but he runs around and asks a lot of questions, right? And there are a lot of people who are non technical in our space. And to me, my my response when I wrote, made my notes, my question was, well, how can we be good coaches if we don't understand the how? Right. You need to understand um, 
the domain that you're actually working in. Because then, I mean, even, even as another example, the, the idea of a facilitator, right? How do I facilitate a conversation between Cliff and Jeff, two developers who are way off in the weeds? If I don't really, how do I know to rein them in versus just let them go because I'm, I'm completely overwhelmed? And that is a big, for all our non-technical listeners, right? Just because you don't write code does not mean you can't understand the how. Absolutely. And you don't need to be an expert. You know, I teach a course uh, called DevOps for Agile Coaches, which I developed. And the reason I created that course, uh, I, I don't advertise it, you know, because I only teach a few people at a time. It takes a year to get through it. It takes a year. And I have two people finishing now and two more people starting. And the, what the result of it, you know, is that it does not turn you into a DevOps engineer. It doesn't. But what it does is it makes you experience all the things that happen in cloud, multi-product, multi-team environments, which is very different from a single team. You know, a single team is the easy case. It's yep. not interested in a, a team. I'm not interested in a team. That's, that, that, I could set up a team like with my eyes closed and uh, that's not what's hard. What's hard is when you have, you know, a, a company like Capital One Bank has 500 teams. And, you know, most big companies have hundreds, if not thousands of products. And those products have to have a cohesive strategy. You can't just have a product owner decide autonomously, our product will do this because I, I have the vision. It doesn't work like that. It has, it has to advance you know, the agenda of the organization as a whole. And the teams often, you know, products today often share components. So you can't have a team just decide, oh, we're going to change the core microservices because we want to, you know, and then you break 10 other products when you do that. You know, yeah, there's significant downstream impacts to just do yeah. it. Yeah. They'll find out their bank balance is wrong. You know, so, uh, so you know, it's, it's complicated. And, um, you know, you, you need to kind of look at, at the whole, you need to look at the whole ecosystem and you, yeah. you, know, you need, you need to have, uh, you need to have leadership around throughout that ecosystem of the right kinds, not traditional rigid hierarchical leadership, but you need thoughtful, you need to be mm -hmm. doing constant organization redesign. And when I say you, I'm talking about leaders, I'm talking about managers, you need the right kinds of people because it does not happen on its own. No, no, it doesn't. And you know, you have, um, there was a one-liner uh, talking about vision and product before we move on to the team stuff. Um, you had a line here where uh, product design is arguably more important than agile. And I said, I read that and I went, uh, ding, ding, ding. I mean, hello. Like, I mean, if you're not thinking of the right product, I don't care how many scrum cycles you run, how many retros you do. And and that ties to the other quote here, which I actually have written on a post-it above my above my monitor. Vision cannot be handed off. That needs to be wholly owned by this leader and it needs to be communicated. You can't just downstream it and say, Oh, go go tell me, you go tell me what our vision's gonna be. That's not a recipe for success. Yeah. Uh, you know, one of the uh, one of the quotes in the book. Uh, which you might have seen was by John Schrag. Uh, he has a really interesting talk. He's, he's head of uh, product design at Autodesk. And he worked in, in the early 2000s or late 90s, I forget. He, he worked for um, 
Lynn, I forget, Lynn Miller, I think. And uh, she's the one who first at least published the concept of dual track design. And he worked for her. And a dual track design is a, a, a process where you have a product design team and you also have in parallel development teams and they collaborate frequently. They, they actually share members and they, they meet every few days or every two weeks or some cadence. And, and so there's a back and forth, there's an orchestrated and thoughtful back and forth between them. But the, but the product design team is its own team and it's a cohesive team of product design experts. And presumably they're talking to real users. And, and you know, that kind of thoughtful approach is essential. And John Schrag in his talk, and this talk is from like only a year ago, he laments how when Agile came out, they had a very robust product design process and Agile completely just act, just cut it out of the, of the loop. And they were very frustrated. And he said he went to conferences and heard the same thing again and again. And it was because product design back then wasn't agile. And so it didn't fit the mm -hmm. agile paradigm. They, they had one of the agile manifesto authors come in. Uh, I forget who it was, but they had someone come in and, and train them, the development teams in agile. And from then on, the product design teams just kind of were flailing in the wind and weren't able to contribute to anything so and that that's a pattern that repeated throughout the industry until like the last two years uh, where people have been trying to remedy that you know there are people in the agile yeah. community who are trying to add add it back they think it's new they think they're doing a new thing adding you know ux and design but no actually they're adding it back right uh, it was because, there to begin with yeah yeah it was there a bit but it wasn't agile and instead of figuring out how to make it agile it just got chopped out, you know? So, and, and methodologies like Scrum don't provide a place for it. There's not a slot for product design. There's not a role right. for it. There's not, you know, it's assumed this product owner has somehow magical vision and they know- <laughs> God you know, mode, yep. Yeah, and that's, you know, what, and, you know, product design was very sophisticated by the nineties. You know, it was very sophisticated. There was a, a concept uh, of um, participatory design where, where you want real users to be envisioning the product and you have to help them do that because that's not their skill. But you have product designers meet with users and help the users to try and envision, you know, not what would replace me, but what, what would empower me? What kind of tools would actually make me right. more effective in my job and help them to come up with the ideas? Um, you know, it was very mature, but Agile really just, axed it yeah it um, kind of got left by the wayside because everybody was chasing the bright and shiny agile coin yeah and you know it i mean at the value of agile was you know a rejection of a lot of dysfunction you know waterfall you know a lot of agilists think that before agile there was waterfall well you know what was iterative development yeah people were doing iterations they might not have had a word for what they were doing but they were releasing code quite frequently yeah Big time. It was, you know, in the 80s, uh, I was on lots of teams that were extremely agile. It was really during the 90s, you know, when PMI kind of really took root and suddenly, you know, everything became waterfall. And, you know, one of our team, Lisa Cooney, is, is from the uh, learning theory side and education content development um, profession. And she says that they went through the same arc, that it used to be that that course development 
was kind of very agile, just naturally, because that's how people sort of mm -hmm. naturally are. But then uh, this methodology came out that was top down and, and very waterfall like. And that happened during the 90s. And it kind of took over the whole profession and made it really dysfunctional. You know, it happened. So it, it didn't just happen in IT. It happened in other fields. Right. Too. All over. There was a blast radius. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> let, let's talk about teams, Cliff. So yeah. one of the one of the lines you have in here is you, you do talk a lot about teams. You talk a lot about leadership and you talk about um, the idea of autonomy. Right. And one of the things that you said, um, first of all, is autonomy. Um, autonomous does not mean leaderless which I thought was, you know, something that everybody needs to take a beat and think about. And also you cannot have autonomy without competence, which I thought is, it's the whole mom, I want to stay out till 10 PM. Well, no, because I told you, you want last night, you wanted to stay out till 9 PM and you came home at 9 15. So you're incompetent. Why am I going to give you, why am I going to give you even more power if you can't prove that you're competent with the little power I gave you last night. And I thought that was really a, a kind of and think about, you know, you need to prove your, you need to crawl before you can, you know, walk before you can run. And you can't, until you prove yourself, how can you just wave your autonomy wand and say, well, you just need to get out of my face and we don't need a manager. It's forest for the trees. Yeah. Managers are really important. You know, I mean, you know, by the late nineties, a lot of people, including myself had a bad taste in their mouth with regard to managers, you know, and because, mm -hmm. you know, I had some really bad bosses uh, during the eighties, you know, um, so, you know, but agile kind of like threw the baby out with the bathwater, you know, what we need is good managers and we do need to allow for emergent, you know, we, we need to be open. We need to, mm -hmm. you know, because people have, ideas come from all over the place. We need to, you know, if someone has inspiration and wants to try something, they need to be empowered, but they also need kind of some, some help, you know, you know, because, they might, their idea might seem crazy, and, but it might be a good idea, but they might need, you might need to watch a little bit to make sure they don't like blow the kitchen up. Um, you know, so it, it, you need the right kinds of leadership and, you know, it needs to be leadership that does welcome experimentation and learning and dialectic discussion and, you know, em empowering people. Uh, that's good leadership. We need that. And, you know, the answer is not to just put a bunch of people in a room and stand back. That's not the answer. Uh, you know, what I find interesting is if you look, you know, the original paper about Scrum, the product development game paper from the 80s, it describes uh, the, a Scrum process, which is very different from the Scrum we know today. Uh, I mean, for one thing, it was an immersive process where people work 80 hour weeks for three months, and then they take three months off to recover. You know, that was, mm. and it basically, they said very clearly in paper, this is not intended for regular work. This is intended for really critical things that have to get done. Uh, you know, it's not sustainable, you know, and I, the new scrum kind of said, oh, we'll use a sustainable pace, problem solved. But, um, but anyway, in that paper, they re refer to the IBM PC team that built the IBM PC team. I know someone who was on that team, by the way. Oh, and, wow. Yeah, and, and they refer to, to that team and they use it as an example of a self-organizing team. But 
it was absolutely not self-organizing. Right. And it had lots of leadership. You know, the, the person who set up that team handpicked people. He handpicked the best of the best from IBM because they needed to build a PC and they were going to build a great PC. And he picked a, a, a very experienced manager of manufacturing and a very experienced engineering manager and the best programmers. And, you know, it was a handpicked team and they had lots of leadership in it. You know, he didn't micromanage them and said, you'll work this way. He, he let those leaders figure it out. Yeah. But good leaders will ask their team, how do you think we should do this? You know, you need good leaders, not no yes. leaders. <laughs> right, right. You don't just remove them. You need the right kinds. Um, one of the other one of the other notes that you hit on frequently in the book that I was I was I'd love to see because I've never I've never seen in all this these agile books I've read before is the importance of the individual when it comes to what we're trying to do. And you know, we emphasize so much team, 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 but we lose sight of the the individual and um and you, you, one of your principles is you foster a diversity of communication and working style because that acknowledges the fact that not everybody is the same on the team, which is where when you we have the, the, the dogmatist, right, come around the corner saying you shall do this, you, or you're going to lose people and you might actually lose some good talent. Yeah, actually, uh, you know, one, the, the best programmer I've ever known happens to live around the corner from me. I just ran into him the other day. Uh, <laughs> I worked with him during the 80s. He single-handedly built the most important product for that company that I was in at the time. You know, they could have stood up a team to do it. It would have taken six months, but they knew they, they wanted to be first to market with it. And, and this, the CTO was a 30-person company, went to this guy, his name's Daniel, and he said, can you do it? And Daniel went home for two months. And he built it. And he did what would have taken a team of people six months to do. Yeah. And, you know, he's, he's, a, he's a genius, you know, and there's a place for people like that. You can't just say, oh, that person doesn't fit. We're not going to use them. They're a bad agilist. You know, no, you have to look at each person as individuals. You know, I ended up hiring him years later for my own company and I never put him on a team because a team is not the place for him. He's not a team player. He has to do things his way. You know, I one time, one time I wrote an expression parser that he used in something. And the first thing he did was rewrite it. And then he, he, it turned out mine was three times faster, but his was more elegant. So he used mine, but he had to redo it himself just to make sure, you know, he's, he's someone who has to work by himself. You know, Interestingly, you know, Linux, which is something that, you know, Google has embraced flat organizations, and, but Google runs on Linux and Linux was built by Linus Torvalds, which is, who is not a team player. No, he's a guy who hides his email. Yeah. <laughs> yeah he's, he works by himself at home in an, a room that has, doesn't seem that the pictures of it doesn't seem to have anything on the wall. And he communicates, communicates with people by email. He's a, he's a lone wolf. You know, he's, he's kind of a jerk sometimes, you know, he sends emails out, do this, do that. I hate that. You're stupid. It's really kind of messed up, but you know, he created Linux, you know, so we cannot just assume everybody works the same. You know, the agile yes. community went on this path very early on of collaboration at all costs. 
you know, because the waterfall was like no collaboration. So yep. let's go to the other side of the boat, collaboration at all costs, you know, and in the process, they created practices and environments that made it impossible for people to think deeply. What, what uh, um, uh, Daniel Kahneman calls, calls system two thinking. System two thinking, yeah. Yeah, you know, you cannot get into deep thought in the zone in an open team room, uh, you know. No, no. No, you're, you're right that the, you know, you called them lone wolf in the book, right? But the importance of, there are some people who may not be great teammates, but their technical acumen or their abilities, a good, a good leader, a good coach will find a way to use them at their best and minimize the impact of the people who maybe need that collaboration or maybe need that, that, that camaraderie slash teamwork. Um, but the one thing I did want to ask you, right? So I, I, I'm a contrarian by nature and I'm naturally cynical. So <laughs> when you started talking about um, introverts versus extroverts, right? And you just brought up Linus Torvalds as a great example. He's a, he's a notorious introvert, right? The way that software delivery is going, not just agile, right? But software delivery technology, the way it's going, is it maybe time for an evolutionary change where developers or software engineers should be expected to be communicative and be able to work well together? Is that something that maybe um, evolutionarily is something that we want or am I completely insane? Well, you know, if well, I know I'm insane, so you don't have to answer that part, but <laughs> is my, does my idea hold water or is it, I'm fighting biology at this point? Well, I don't think we should try to do social engineering on it. I think we should, you know, kind of let it evolve. And, you know, if we look at very successful companies, they're not companies that try to follow an agile playbook, but they are very agile, but in their own way. Like mm-hmm. Amazon is a good example. Um, you know, Amazon is led by a person who appears to be fairly introverted. Uh, and look how successful it is. And uh, SpaceX is led by someone who is without, and Tesla, without a doubt, an introvert. And look how successful it is. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I think the evidence is that, uh, you know, we need to not presume that people should be a certain way. Uh, you know, we need to accept that neurodiversity is a reality. Mm-hmm. And on a team of people, you know, my business partner, Lisa Cooney, uh, told me a few weeks ago, she said, we have to get an office. And I said, well, why do we have to get an office? I have a home office. I love it. You have a really nice home office. Why do you? She said, I have to get out and be among people. Okay. Because she's an extrovert. So mm-hmm. I said, okay, we'll get an office, you know, and, um, you know, you have to allow people the environment in which they will flourish and not just say, well, you know, let's dot vote. And okay. Uh, four out of seven of us decide we're all going to work this way. So we all have to work this way. That's unfair um, to those other three. Uh, you, you know, a, a good team lead, whether it's an agile coach or scrum master or a, just a team lead of some type, um, will will try to look at the human side, try to see people as individuals. You know, the agile manifesto begins, the first value begins with individuals, not teams. It starts with individuals and interactions mm-hmm. over process and tools. Somehow we've lost the individuals part. It's become team, 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 team. Individuals matter. Teams matter too. They both matter. 
And we cannot forget that people are individuals. People are not the team that they belong to. And when, you know, you talked about, you know, we've lost, we lost the individual, we've gone to the team. Um, with that comes um, an interesting quote I pulled out was when you started talking about the idea of a methodology or a framework. And the one-liner from the book was installing a framework isn't software, it's a human process with not steps, but opportunities to make judgments. And that last part of that statement, I think, is where 99% of the agile industrial complex falls down yeah. is because they don't take the time to say, hey, you know what? This demo every two weeks or this retro every two weeks, maybe it's not really working for us. Let's 86 it. Instead, you have people looking at it like uh, like the, uh, what is the line from Die Hard? They have the FBI hostage negotiation playbook and they're running it step-by-step, step, right? Following, do, doing the, the kabuki, right? The agile theater you're not getting the same value and you really do need to make that judgment and say, keep it or kill it. That was an incredible movie that I heard. I have to watch. Oh, so yeah, amazing. And it holds up really movie. well. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. You know, I think you did kind of nail it. That's sort of the essence of it because, you know, and by the late nineties, we had, you know, like PMI, uh, which I don't want to pick on them too much because, you know, they've, they acquire disciplined agile and they're, you know, they're trying to change, but, you know, PMI really kind of did some harm um, to the IT community. I mean, their, 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 their training and curriculum is really good for some things, but it's not good for software. You know, the original uh, PMP model. Um, and, you know, it, it created a culture and it wasn't just, you know, them, it was like I mentioned, you know, the uh, uh, learning theory community with its top-down methodology they came out with. It's like everybody in the 90s tried to make everything repeatable and tried to create playbooks uh, and cookbooks for everything. And, you know, PMI was trying to do a good thing, if, you know, because in the 80s, you had to find a good project manager. And if you didn't find a good project manager, you're screwed, you know. Uh, it was like an art. It was a black art. And so they, they thought, how it's still can a we... black art, Cliff? Let's be and, honest well, here. Because <laughs> it's about people. Yeah. But they were trying to figure out how can we make it repeatable? And so they defined a process that was centered around documents. So if this document's done good, you've, you're, you go on the next step. You know, no way to know if the document's any good, but check, you did it. You know, and that didn't work. But people got in this mindset of you always need a procedure and we developed organizations have cultures, you know, uh, you know, big organizations with hierarchies where especially where they, where they pit groups against each other because they compete for budget. They tend to be, be fearful, uh, competitive, antagonistic toward different parts of the organization. It's a real snake pit. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, in that kind of environment, people don't do anything unless there's a checklist that says you should do that. You know, they won't make their own decisions uh, and they won't say what they really think openly. You know, so, you know, Agile really was a rejection of that. And Agile at its core is, is saying, well, everything is a contextual decision. Everything. At every step, you have to say, what should we do? You know, that's and that's what, uh, you know, a lot of senior leaders don't get. They think it's a process change. They think they can just roll out a new process and they don't realize the extent to which it has to their culture has to change. You know, and often yeah. I hear 
they don't have agile mindset, but I never hear anyone say what that really means. Well, I'll tell you what it means. It, it, means, it means you have a, a culture that, that encourages and rewards open, honest dialogue. It, it, it has a, a culture that rewards and encourages sharing of actual status of things and actual issues. Um, it, it, it rewards careful, thoughtful experimentation, not reckless experimentation. Um, you know, those are ingrained behavioral norms that are hard to change, but leaders have to change those things. Um, no one else yeah. can do it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the things, you know, you brought up PMI, which I think is a great example, right? I, I don't think a lot of people see PMI, they think waterfall, and they want to throw it out, the baby with the bathwater, where there is some brilliance in that pinbox, right? There is some brilliance in scaled agile, right? There's some brilliance in a lot of these things. I do yeah. think a big chunk of why we ended, why agile, the, the practice has ended up where it is, is because first of all, human beings are lazy, right? We're trying to make the easiest decisions possible because we're trying to conserve calories. This goes back to, you know, Cro-Magnon man. So simple decisions are best. So that's why we say, oh, we have a framework. And part of that, let's be honest here and call it like it is. Part of it is your big tier consulting who in order to sell Cliff Berg on this wonderful new thing called Agile. I'm going to show you this picture. I'm going to say, we're going to do this. Where to your point there, yes, the processes you can do, you can do Agile theater, right? And you can do all that sort of stuff. But unless you actually have the cultural change, which comes from the leaders that model the behavior they're looking for, you're, you're, you know, your Sisyphus pushing the rock up the hill, right? And yeah. I don't care what anybody says about imagine Sisyphus happy. He's not happy. He's pushing a rock up a hill for a turn. <laughs> and that's where we end up. Yeah, yeah, I actually, uh, you know, I have, a, I drew, a, a, I, I was born with the ability to draw, although I don't know what to do with it, you know, so, but in, you know, because I'm not creative, you know, if someone says draw something beautiful, I don't know what to draw, I say, well, give me something to draw, something actual to draw, and y'all draw that, but I actually created a, a cartoon of Sisyphus in, in one of my books, um, that was actual application of, of that, um, but yeah, the, you know, big consulting companies, it took them a while to kind of figure out, you know, what to do with Agile because their whole model is based on putting lots of people on site and having big plans, you know, and then, you know, they loved the whole document centric stuff because those are deliverables and they could hire kind of, you know, uh, inexperienced people to just, you know, create those documents and, you know, so they, they would do the typical thing of where they bring in their heavyweights, you know, really experienced people to close the deal. And then they put a lot of, you know, junior people on site to actually do the work. And, you know, the outcome of that is really awful. Uh, but, you know, some of them do know what they're doing. Uh, oh, absolutely. It's so, just, I think, to your point, there's there's a revenue target that somebody somewhere is trying to hit and they grossly misstate to the poor customer, the amount of change they're actually signing up for when they say, yes, Mr. Big Company X, I want you to help me run my transformation. They're not, they're sold a kind of a fake bill of goods. Well, yeah. And I, I think, you know, it's not, not always like ill-intentioned. I, mm -mm. you know, I, I, one problem is that the, uh, you know, we started out in this discussion uh, about how, you know, Agile has changed. And, you know, depending who you end up with on an engagement, you know, if you reach out to a consulting company, you know, some people are holding on to old Agile, you know, 
And if, if, if you get someone who is kind of old agile, you know, what they produce is not going to really work, you know, because old agile, uh, you know, was really about 18, <laughs> you know, it didn't answer the question of what do you do with lots of teams. And, you know, if you know, and there, you know, actually, you know, agile two is really the only thing I know of that really kind of addresses that, I think, you know, because, you know, like, like safe and less and, and enterprise scrum and all those, they all address different parts, although those are frameworks, they're fairly prescriptive, although discipline agile is kind of a menu of stuff. Uh, a lot of good ideas and all those things. Um, mm -hmm. If you treat it as just collections of ideas to pick from uh, and don't try to just implement the ideas. Yeah. But there's, it's a multidimensional picture. It's a multidimensional problem. You need to address the culture in a very intentional way. It's not just like, oh, teach, teach all the executives about Scrum or about that. That won't work because that doesn't have the wisdom in it. You know, the, the, the wisdom is about the right leadership models and how people collaborate effectively in groups and how to, you know, how to, how to do, you know, there's, there's a term that sprouted recently, which I kind of like, but I'm also kind of fearful of it. It's um, uh, flash mob leadership, <laughs> you know? Okay. But, yeah, which, but I kind of like it because it points to a, a reality in organizations today that a lot of times, and this is why hierarchies don't really work anymore. Uh, we still need them, but they, they, don't, they're, they kind of don't work. And, you know, because issues often today cut across organizational boundaries very frequently. And I'll give you an example, just on the fly. Uh, imagine uh, uh, someone needs to change a core microservice that's used by 20 different products. Well, now you have 20 different parts of the organization that are potentially mm -hmm. affected. So who's going to lead that issue? What are you going to bring all the, the EVPs of the different business units? Uh, you know, so, you know, somehow someone has to be watching that kettle and standing up the team or identifying the people because you need the right people in the room, you know, and no more. You can't have, if you create a big group of people, they won't solve it. You need the right people in the room and just the right people yeah. to solve that issue and you need to make sure they solve it well. You can't just let them go and cross your fingers. You have to watch, you know, and, you know, so that's just in time leadership around a cross organizational issue that requires, you know, executive leadership that's watching very carefully at a tactical level and being very thoughtful and inquisitive, not dictatorial, mm -hmm. um, you know, but being kind of an orchestrator you know, and an experimenter, you know, because, you know, what if you set up a cross organization team and then it kind of gets stuck, then what do you do? So you have to change right. something, you right. know, and, you know, so, you know, so it's complicated and you know, that's, you know, the leadership issues are the main issues uh, today, actually, I think. So Cliff, what's next for you and Agile 2? What's next? Well, we'll, We'll probably come out with a minor revision to Agile too, although it, we haven't begun that. It's it's too soon. Um, you know, we we were braced for a lot of feedback, like oh, you should change this and change that. But instead, <laughs> we've gotten pretty much like ninety nine point nine nine percent has been like, oh my god, this is what I've been thinking, but was afraid to say, <laughs> or like, 
like yeah someone put this all together um it's i can see like, that i was i was nodding vigorously cliff when i was reading the intro with the, the whole here's how we painted ourselves into that corner i was i was taking pictures and texting it to people like look somebody finally put it into paper the argument that we have over beers every time we get together somebody wrote it <laughs> yeah it's scary you know i'm waiting for the shoe to drop you know it, but it's so you know, we've had some little suggestions. I mean, we've had a couple of instances where someone said, I hate it. I don't know why, but I hate it. <laughs> really. <laughs> I, there have been like a couple of people who have like written me and said, I, I just, I hate it, you know, <laughs> and without like really a reason. I'm really, I'm serious. Um, rubs me the wrong way. But, um, you know, I think those are people who like identify with the status quo on a personal level. Right. Like you said, they've, they've developed their own um, internal persona of themselves. Their vision of themselves is married. Yeah. So coupled so tightly to that manifesto and the way it's written in every single word that to, to create any type of, of schism is kind of like so, challenges, upsets their worldview. You know, we, we're not, and this is something we discussed a lot, the agile two team, we're not trying to overturn the manifesto. The manifesto is a really good document. It is. There's problems with it, especially with some of the principles. I have some problems with some of the principles, uh, but overall, it's you know on a scale of one to ten, it's a nine. Mm -hmm. um, so you know we're not trying to discard that. I think it's a great piece of work. You know I don't. You know Agile too doesn't try to be this self-contained, closed system. You know we say very clearly in multiple places, it's a set of ideas. It's these are ideas that are open ideas. And you cannot write just a book about it. You have, there's a whole world of literature about leadership, about collaboration, about cognitive science, about product design. You know, we tried to pull together things that we think really matter for agility and, and you know, uh, settings where groups of people are trying to accomplish something, uh, especially when there's technology involved, which is almost always today. Um, but it's not, it's not a closed system. You know, we're not trying to replace anything. We're not trying to replace DevOps, you know, not by a long shot. DevOps is its own thing. Mm -hmm. we, we, we think DevOps is great. We're not trying to replace, you know, the manifesto. We think the manifesto is great. We, we just think people should view it as a great document that has some flaws, but it's a great document. And there's some, some wisdom in it if you interpret it well. You know, like you said, the original authors were fairly experienced people. So they had assumptions about things, you know, like, you know, individuals and interactions over processes and tools. That doesn't mean processes and tools don't matter. You need right. judgment. Right. At every point, you need judgment. You know, guess what? If you have a deployment tool and you need to deploy and it's not working, that becomes the most important thing that day. So processes and tools matter. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just, you know, it, it depends, you know, that all matters. You have to have the judgment and to have a judgment, you have to have experience. You cannot read the agile manifesto and get anything from it. If you don't have a lot of experience um, and it's not complete, it doesn't say anything about data. Like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding? Data is more important than code. How can it not mention anything about data? You know, uh, mm -hmm. and today, you know, the, 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 the real pain from this is I, I have a, a, a friend who is a machine learning expert and I mean, a real machine learning expert He's a, you know, mathematician, 
And he uh, got a job for a Fortune 10 company. I'm not going to say which one. And his task was to help build some models to use their data to see if they could, could create some work, workable models. And he, he couldn't. He couldn't because they have hundreds of teams all broadcasting you know, uh, transactional data as history to their data lake. And so it's a data cesspool. And he wasn't <laughs> able to make correlations mm -hmm. across different things because nothing has a schema anymore and no one was documenting what the heck all those messages meant. You know, so, so there they have this huge asset that they're unable to make use of. Right, um, because it's data. so it's again. Well, that's this is another that's another textbook example of someone seeing a bright and shiny toy and saying, "I want to use this whole data lake unstructured data idea," without actually taking the pause to reflect and say, "Okay, what if you know, Jordi, uh, Jordi London? I quote her all the time. She always says, you need to design for redesign.' And when you're just dumping all your data in a giant pile, you're creating a landfill." And this is an example of why, you know, you don't just let a team self-organize and have complete autonomy. You know, an experienced person would know better, really. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, you, you, you take junior teams, you know, and, you know, they think, oh, we're using a NoSQL database. That's great. And, oh, you know, we're using domain-driven design, so we only have to worry about our bounded context, you know, and, you know, they take shortcuts. and. And then, so they pump stuff, messages to a data lake. Oh, great, we're doing agile, you know, and we have a pipeline, we're doing DevOps. And it creates, uh, it creates a mess. Um, and, but, you know, what doesn't work, you know, so it used to be organizations had data architects, which was kind of dysfunctional. Because I remember around 2000, uh, suddenly there was every organization had data architects, information architects, security architects, like XYZ, all kind of architect. And I remember thinking, wait, isn't an architect supposed to be someone who knows all of that stuff and can integrate it all? Wait, mm -hmm. isn't, isn't an adjective in front of an architect kind of contradictory? Shouldn't the architect be someone who has some knowledge of all of those things? How can yep. you have a data architect? Should be maybe a data engineer, but architect should just be architect you know right right but, but anyway that's what we had and that was kind of messed up and you know agile kind of rose to prominence and organizations created agile teams they discovered that these data architects and information architects I thought, wait why is a data architect different from an information architect and um there's a reason <laughs> i don't think it's a good reason but there's a right. reason but um but anyway you know, so the way data architects worked was you had to give them your requirements and then they would craft a new schema. You know, and that doesn't work to, mm -hmm. if you want to get stuff done quickly. So again, like product design, it got chopped out and organizations got rid of their data architects. You know, and so instead of figuring out how to manage your data in an agile way, which may be like embed a embed a data architect in a team, mm -hmm. you know, maybe uh, teach them how to work in real time instead of all up front, you know, uh, maybe some coaching, 
you know, uh, maybe read Scott Amler's book on agile modeling, you know, some mm -hmm. other things, you know, so instead of trying to advance data modeling and data architecture and make it agile, it just got chopped out. And today we have a train wreck. You know, we have companies that have data cesspools and they want to use machine learning and they can't, they're stuck. You know, I, um, a colleague of mine works for a, a company that actually is a startup that started about four years ago. And they suddenly, you know, they, they have a, a new CTO and they suddenly want to use all this data that they've accumulated and they can't because they had no data architects and they just pumped all this stuff into a big data lake. And now they have all this data and it's totally unusable. Oh, this is terrible. This is terrible. So um, let me ask you this, Cliff. We've been, we've been on for almost an hour and I think we could probably go another couple. Sure. Um, if people want to get more information, they want to get in contact with you, they want to find out more about Agile 2, where do they go? Where do they look? Oh, well, agile2.net uh, is kind of a portal. It's got links to the book and it's got links to you know articles and, and so on. It has all the content. It's kind of a large site. That's one thing we did differently consciously from the Agile Manifesto. Now, the Agile Manifesto is a great document, but it's kind of like a bunch of like, uh, assertions without anything behind them. Like, here, this is great. That's great. Trust us. You know, we didn't want to do that. We wanted to provide the thought behind what we created. And so, so it might be intimidating for some people, but that's why we wrote the book. Because the book, you read it in a weekend. It's designed to be a fast read. That's on purpose. It was intentionally not written like a textbook. It was written to be something that you could breeze through. Mm -hmm on purpose. We wanted to have 250 pages, but it ended up being 400. It was, couldn't help that because uh, there's a lot of stuff, but it's purposefully a, a smooth read, you know, so I would point people to the book. Um, okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, uh, Cliff, on behalf of myself and our listeners, I want to thank you for joining us. This has been a great conversation. Uh, I look forward to the next one on behalf of Cliff and myself. I want to thank all of you listeners for tuning in again. Once again, here we go. Um, if you like what you heard, please leave us a review, a rating on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, your podcasting platform of choice because it helps others find us. We are going to have some uh, very interesting conversation about this book in Agile 2 on our Discord server, so feel free to look us up. And last but not least, I'd be remiss if I didn't thank Machine Man Records and their artist Krebs for providing us our outro music uh, royalty-free, so now YouTube stops taking our stuff down. So once again, I want to thank Cliff for, for joining us, and until next time, this is Jerisco and the Agile Uprising Podcast signing out. Thank you, Jack.